0: Welcome to the podcast, Shek, founder of WordSoul Club and the Gum Protocol. Can you introduce yourself and kind of give like a little bit of a background about yourself, your programming journey, and how you stumbled into
1: Solana? Hi, I'm Shek, founder of Gum. I've been programming for a while now. I'm 30 years old now. I, I, I guess I, I wrote my first program when I was 13 years old. I've been programming for a while. Uh, so, professionally, for the longest time, like since after I graduated from university until like in 2013 to 2022, I worked on like a variety of distributed systems problem and also more specifically in dis- distributed machine learning training infrastructure and machine learning pipelines. So, yeah, I've always been interested in crypto as like as a very interesting thing that's happening in, in the larger world of technology, but I never really took it seriously, right? Back in university, I read the Bitcoin paper, and I thought, okay, fine, this is cool. I never really thought anything serious would come out of it, right? There's so always been that case. I... I mean, I used to participate in retail because whenever you see that, you know, my price goes up, prop, okay, you want to see what is happening, but never really thought that it's serious enough that, you know, people would actually go into it full time as an industry. This changed for me in 2020 when I saw that there were, okay, you now there are like so many real world. Applications of crypto and people are doing DeFi and then this like smart contracts have smart contracts and this whole idea of programmable money had taken off. So I was like, okay, looks like there is a real use case for crypto and people are actually using it, as opposed to it being, you you buy Bitcoin and that's about it. And also interestingly, that's also around the time when the previous startup. Found down we sold to one of our customers and then and that kind of opened up my it kind of opened up my time I was started thinking what do we do next because like when you are working at a startup you don't really have time to think about anything other than what you are working on and then that's just life right so so now I've been keeping track of all the interesting things that have been happening okay now that I have some amount of free time i'm going to start looking into what's happening and that's how i stumbled upon solana i stumbled upon solana by you know just hanging out on twitter and setting up like an anon twitter account i guess it's it's not anon anymore but then when i started out like my twitter account today was was like an anon account and i was just looking at look, looking at what everyone is doing and shit posting. Then I started seeing a lot of people were talking about Solana. And I wanted to go a little bit deep into it and understand what is it that what is it that they do. I really like the I really like the approach towards Solana, for example, if you're the one of the hardest thing in building any kind of distributor system is like synchronizing clocks. When I saw proof of history and how they are using it as a mechanism to kind of do away with that problem, it was like, wow. Well, it was like Solana was optimizing, optimizing, or attacking it at the right place, and then everything else. Once you have that as a baseline, now everything else becomes like an optimization problem, right? And how then it's like how can we get the most out of the machine? So I really liked that approach of Solana's architecture, and then started going deeper and deeper into it. As I was going deeper and deeper into it, I also saw that this whole meme of, you know, building on Solana is like chewing glass because you need to understand so many things about it. The programming model is... Uh,
0: The timeless meme. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The programming model is not very easy to understand. Right? Like everything on Solana works on dependency injection. You have to pass in the account. And then like now you have to... It's not something that's immediately obvious to a lot of people. It takes a little while to get it, but then once you once you get it, it's like a very, very powerful tool. And you can literally start building anything, right? It's like a list where you get the basics and it changes the way you think about your your programs. That's also a very, very powerful unlock. And I really like that, so I started like writing so one, one of the first blogs that I, I wrote was about this three-part series on Solana's accounts model. And when I was writing this out, there was no place for me to publish these blogs that was Solana native. Where it, was kind of, it was weird to me that I was writing all this stuff and then there was no place for me to publish it. So in the EVM world, there was mirror, but Solana did not have an equivalent. So I, create, I kind of scratched my own itch and created what became WordSell. Everything you've just
0: said has kind of like sparked a couple of different questions in me. The thing that totally resonates with me of how you like describe the, the programming model where it's like, it's very complex, but once you fully understand it and like can utilize it, it's super powerful. And I think that kind of comes from the fact that A, it's Rust is like predominantly the language that everyone uses. From what I've noticed, a lot of developers who are trying to build Web3 projects and products, whether that's a you know, a personal project or they're trying to make an actual business out of it. A lot of them don't have that like low level systems engineering background to wrap their head around all the things that you have to do within Rust. There, a lot of them are, are front end developers, they're JavaScript developers. So like they don't have that different type of systems understanding. And that's actually kind of like how I came into it. Is like, I predominantly do only JavaScript and, uh, and TypeScript, which is, you know, just the same thing. As I've come to understand the programming model of Solana more and more, like, I can read Rust code and kind of, like, figure out what's going on. I can't write Rust yet. I'm working on that, though. It's, like, definitely kind of the hard thing to to wrap your head around. Is WordSoul the first uh, company that you personally founded? yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. I'm super curious about how WordSoul works underneath the hood. I assume now you're using the GUM protocol that you're taking forward, but... Is, is WordCell primarily originally based off of Gum and then you just like open sourced it and it became Gum? Is that like the gist? Yeah. And can you like kind of explain how how it works under the hood? I'm super curious. Like I was reading through the Gum docs to try to wrap my head around how you're actually storing all this. Take a blog post, for example, how you're actually like storing that in a Solana native way that is still cost-effective and like
1: a good user experience. Yeah, it's a great question. So... With Wordsle, what we did was to how. So one of the things that I really like liked about what Metaflix was doing was you have now that you have this concept of an account, that means that now that account has a layout, and that inside the layout you have a bunch of fields, and one of that fields is a metadata URI. And with with an NFT, that metadata URI could point to a could point to a JSON document with a specified schema about maybe maybe the JPEG or or an audio file or a video file, or it could even be a HTML file that you can load off of another URL. When I first saw that, it was super interesting to me. So I was like, okay, fine. Maybe if I want to create a blog post, then I'm just gonna go go ahead and create a similar structure. And one of the things that immediately stood out to me was each one of these layouts looked to me like a record in a database. So each BDA that we create with the specific way of, I treat that, we treat that like a row in a database. So now you have a, and from there it kind of builds up pretty easily, right? So, um, so we have this concept of a profile post, and then there is this concept of connections, and then there is, you have reaction, all of this, like the moment you, approach it like you uh, you are creating a database schema for like you would do in the webto world and you just have to convert that into a BDA structure and establish like this kind of like one-to-many or many-to-many relationships. That isn't the easy way to do it. You kind of have to mentally map from one domain to another. One thing that I would really like is creating like a much more transparent ORM on top of Anchor, like how you have Diesel or SQLx, so that way you could like map some. You could create your entire relational domain just like you would normally do, and then you immediately convert it into an Anchor's kind of a thing.
0: So let me make sure that I understand. So you're basically storing take like a blog post for example. You're basically storing it as an nft using the metaplex nft standard oh no 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 or you're just like you just took that as like the inspiration yeah i took that as an ins- storing a json i took that uri on, on i took chain. it as
1: the inspiration and then put our structure
0: gotcha okay gotcha is the actual like content that gets posted is that stored on chain or is that
1: off chain no you only have like a uri pointer it's very similar to how nfts work
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense. Cause I was, I was like thinking about it when I first heard about WordSoul and I was just like, Ooh, it's, you know, Solana a of native blogging platform, content sharing platform. And I was like, wait, are they storing this information on chain? I need to figure out how this is working. Cause like, I just find it super fascinating. Okay, cool. This is a, a leading question to segue us into the next part that I want to talk about is what's the cost of creating each of these interactions of creating an account on WordSoul logging all of this type of social graph type data like user interactions, blog posts,
1: that sort of thing? There are two ways to look at it, right? So our primary protocol that is pre-compression and post-compression. So the way it works is you have one version of the program that's the base protocol which is uncompressed where everything, each instantiation of a, a post or a connection or a reaction or a profile, all of these gets created as the as an individual PDA. So I think each PDA takes like, what, anywhere from 96 to 128 bytes. Um, so it's probably cal- calculating how much it costs.
0: It's whatever that yeah. you know, rent cost is for that many bytes, sure. Okay, so it's like relatively small, like a a single address is 32 bytes. Like that's still a
1: small amount of data. But then at scale, this number can easily go up, right? For example, these works for things like blog posts because you don't create as many blog posts as you would create. um, You would create micro tweets or as you would create. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. That is much more common in the social social media today, right? So that's where compression was. The moment I saw compression, I was like, oh my God, this is exactly what we need. Yes. Right? But let's take a couple of steps back. I'll tell you the reason why I got like very interested in taking Word full-time as a company. Right? We won Riptide and all of that sure. Even before that, the reason why I was really interested I got convinced to take go full-time into building Word as a company. I also put all of my time to this is that I, I realized the underlying structure that we have. That when I was modeling this domain, I realized that everything that I'm doing is like pretty much common to any social media app, right? The reason why it was a blogging platform that was first out there was because that was what was that's what you could do without compromising on the UX and do kind of testing out this on a kind of like with the training wheel. People don't write as many blocks as they tweet or as they use Instagram or so on, right? So at that point, it works. Without compression, I was working on like other off-chain mechanisms where you can use PDAs to guarantee that the address won't exist as long as, for example, you can basically generate, you can commit an address to an off-chain storage with a particular set of seeds. And then you can ensure that nobody else can have the same address, right? Like even because your address, whatever address you would generate is tied to that seed. So based on that, I was working on off-chain mechanisms to kind of store this data externally and then bring them back into some fashion on Solana. Well, in the moment I saw compression, I don't even have to do this where I maintain things off-chain and then bring them back. I could, in fact, just send these transactions directly to the cluster and let that accumulate the state. And that simplified a lot of what we were doing. Yeah,
0: I can imagine that, it, it, like with the whole, with everything that the infrastructure that, that is being built around compression and all the indexing that's going to inherently be built around it, you just send the single transaction of here's my JSON URI. Yeah. And then you just let the blockchain and the indexers handle the rest of it. Yeah. It, it, I'm sure it simplifies a lot of the code you were planning on writing. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise,
1: the way I was thinking about was okay, fine, oh, I'm going to have to build this as a sidechain where all of this data first gets sent to this chain, and then that's where it is stored. And in order to guarantee state commitment, we would post back some of this transaction back onto the chain. So now we don't even have to do that because you have state compression as a so mechanism to do it because you get the guarantee that instead of it going via your own set of nodes, you can send it directly to the Solana network and you get the guarantee from the Solana network on what was sent.
0: Yeah, so I guess like with compression and everything that you're building with GUM, what are some of the pitfalls that you see going forward to try to integrate compression into GUM to make it A, cheaper, but also, like, more easily interact with it. Like, off the top of my head, the thing I see is indexing and getting indexers to support a, a like, data schema that... Because, like, for those of you who are listening and don't know, with compression, right now, the indexers are kind of only supporting compressed NFTs as a data schema using the, the Metaplex metadata standard, right? It's a very common data schema, So all the indexers are able to commonly index everything because they all go through the bubblegum program, which is compressed NFTs on Solana, again, created by Metaplex. But like, if you go to try to use sort of quote-unquote generic state compression on Solana, indexers need to figure out how to adequately index all the data if they want to. I mean, we'll find out once more generic state compression becomes usable and like people start actually using it. We'll figure out how
1: indexers kind of feel about yeah. indexing generic data. That's one of our biggest problems. So the way I am addressing that is like, I'm like the way Metaplex did it was to create their own digital asset standard and create that test. there is this DAS API that exists, right? So we are doing something very similar where I'm actually working off of a fork of the digital asset standard APIs. Oh, cool. So based on that, I've created our own schema. But then the problem here is that now since this data model is inherently relational the queries that you would want to do there it's just going to be like a ton of joints so it's like a lot of optimization work that we (laughs) that we have to do before any rpc provider can just take it and run it it's going to be interesting how this is going to become generic right because one compression is not well supported in any kind of ideal there isn't a definite way to describe your schema it's whatever Mm -hmm. it's whatever you define, right and also your leaf schema can be anything and on top of Mm that, now if you want to support like different types of assets it's going to get interesting once we ship session keys, we are some of the work that i've been doing on session keys is already outside so next couple of weeks we are going to go all out into getting projects to integrate session keys right now i look at this pop-ups as like a much more bigger impediment to people actually building these kinds of apps right so we so that was one of the high priority things that i wanted to solve so now that it's done and ready to be shipped now the next focus for me personally is to work with a bunch of games and other consumer apps and integrating session keys once i feed up a little bit From that, I can start focusing. One of the things that I wanted to do is a bunch of derived macros to any, so that you can convert any program or any account into its compressed counterpart, right? I think once you have this, this kind of macro, and that means that you can now, that is a way to define this and throw it directly into the IDL and also add it to your existing program. Once you have this at the program level, then it makes it even it makes it starts making it easier for indexes and also i think with now helios has this program account webhooks right where you can listen on changes to accounts that also may, that also should make building indexers a lot more easier assuming somebody is still willing to put in the effort to create their <laughs> create the representation of your representation of their program state into a data schema that they can just dump into maybe you use Postgres or whatever you use, you still want to dump it there and then you want to expose Mm -hmm. that via an API, right? So I think we are definitely like very early in terms of creating these kinds of abstraction. I think it's probably going to take like a couple more projects, a couple more protocols using compression before you arrive at that something that's super generic
0: that's a really good point because it's the classic problem like as a programmer is you could build something for one particular use case and then take it like a data provider where it's like you your code understands one particular data provider but then the additional complexity just to add a second data provider is like usually like the struggle to trying to act enough of that code yeah. away to make it as generic as possible but then like it scales pretty well once you get that second and third one, Exactly. where it's like, after you have a couple of them, you can kind of figure out the best way to to kind of like structure everything. So it makes it way, way easier in the long run. Yeah, it's like one of
1: these, uh, you know, you, you don't automate it until you have done it like three, four times manually. Right? Yeah, exactly. They're <laughs> doing it manually phase, but I'm very, very We're in the manual <laughs> phase right I'm now, very, very excited <laughs> for, uh, you know, state compression to become like a very, very standard thing. And there is like a lot of tools or tooling. One of the, one of the other unique things about state compression is that you're only logging the commitment to the instructions that you want to execute on as part of your state, right? The actual execution of the instructions happen on chain so that means that you're creating some you're maintaining some kind of an exact replica of all the exact replica of the logs and also an exec- and you also want to execute these logs so that you can have the updated state that is also important so mm-hmm. it's also going to it's also going to boil down to how exactly can you take this instructions execute it you also have not only you have to replicate the data schema, you also have to replicate some of the state transition logic. Right. So it's not going to be as as easy as just, you know, drop something in and then magically state compression works for you. That's the
0: goal down the line, right? Yeah. To make it so it's all like auto-magically happening where it's you can drop in compression to anything you want.
1: What it enables is a world where like you use Solana for bandwidth and you use it for state commitment, right? After that, everything else is just goes into your parallel chain or side chain, whatever you want to call it. That's essentially the, mm-hmm. a much more abstracted version of the state compression is that, right?
0: Yeah. I'm so bullish on like everything that the state compression. I've been doing a whole bunch of research and understanding to create a bunch of documentation and and code examples and whatnot. I did a live stream a couple of days ago on how to do compressed NFTs. and, uh, And like just explaining the different concepts of like how the Merkle tree works and the concurrent Merkle tree and like how to properly size your tree to be able to like have maximum composability but also try to reduce your costs as well it's a lot of concepts that as a developer you have to understand in order to like get it right at first because like you you pay up front for your tree yeah. <laughs> so it's like if you don't get it right you're gonna kind of like hold that cost which is it's good that the cost is significantly lower than before overall but you're paying up front for it vice like if you're a you know nft collection the minters are going to pay that 0.012 soul to mint an NFT. Vice with compressed NFTs and just like trees in general, like you pay the cost up front as the creator. So that's something that like people have to have like a, like wrap their head around for this like shift in, in thinking for the next wave of this really cool technology. Yeah. Yeah. I thought
1: compression is like a lot of glass. It's going to take a little bit of time, but it's okay. I think tooling will get a lot better on better around it. Oh yeah. Maybe like mid April, I'm going to sp- spend some time taking some of the stuff, abstracting some of the stuff that we have and converting those into these traits and macros that you can actually derive. So that any, any PDA yeah, awesome. can have a compressed counterpart. I think that would be very cool. Any PDA has a compressed counterpart and then you also have an instruction which has compressed counterpart
0: yeah that'd be really cool like developer tooling making that glass softer and softer <laughs> as time goes on <laughs> turning it into bubblegum one might say so i want to circle back to something you you kind of mentioned earlier and we had talked about very briefly before is this concept of sessions and session keys can you explain what this concept of of on-chain sessions are and like how you're kind of tackling that problem, both at like at a high level
1: and also I'm very technically curious of how that works. Okay, awesome. So I think on a high level, one major distinction between web two and web three is that in web two world, the approach to security is tiered, right? Even though you have your APIs that work on basic auth, sending a username, password for combination for every back API call that you make is tedious. So you set up some kind of a mechanism where you have sessions or you have JWT tokens, which kind of let you bypass this authentication mechanism in the server. And then you validate just the, the session token and you do, you proceed with whatever you want, right? And then on top of that, there, there are, but then you do not really want to use sessions for everything in the web world. If you're dealing with something potentially destructive, you are expected to enter your password. If something that's like extremely destructive, you you're expected to enter your password along with the 2FA. So the approach to security in the Web2 world is like much more refined, much more tiered, and much more scoped. Cut to Web3 where everything is a key pair. And as long as you have a key pair and you're able to sign the transaction, your smart contract treats it in such a way that everything is fair game, right? I think that produces like a lot of barriers in terms of creating user-friendly workflows or even creating user-friendly user experiences right and the prime example of that being for every time you want to write or broadcast a transaction to the blockchain you need to sign a transaction and in order since all of these transactions are how to originate from your main wallet. So you need to take into account the security of your main wallet before you send any transaction. So some people would do it via auto-approve or would do it via you know, an in-app wallet, but then that also means that now you're fracturing identities or, and worse yet, you still treat security as like a binary thing, not as, this kind, of a, this kind of scoped and tiered approach to security. So how session keys work is when the first time you come and connect your wallet, and if you have session keys integrated, so you're going to initiate a session. When you initiate a session, you create generate an ephemeral key pair, key pair. And when you do generate the ephemeral key pair, you top it up with enough LAMP ports to pay for the transactions and whatever rent you might incur. And all of this information is captured and scoped in terms of the key pair that you just generated and the program that you want to use this key pair against, that's the target program, and the validity for the session, right? So you capture all, and the the actual, and the main wallet which originated the session, that's your, so you capture all of this, into a PDA and you get this PDA as a reference, right? So the next time you want to submit a transaction, you do do not show a pop-up, instead you sign it via the ephemeral key and send it along with the session token. That's the session PDA. So now when you send this transaction, your downstream smart contract can validate the signatures based on the session token, and the signer, they know who is the authority and if the authority of that session token is also the authority of the original PDA, it can basically let the transaction pass. So basically what it it does is like it enables a secondary signer to a transaction, right? So for certain instructions, even if you do not sign it with your... primary key pair you can sign these transaction with the secondary key pair as long as you have a token saying that the secondary key pair was created by the primary
0: so let me make sure i understand this so you're basically it's like you're the the sdk for using your session keys are it it generates this like new ephemeral key pair that is 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 that key pair stored on chain is it stored locally within like say i have like a a website like take wordsl for example you you have a website that you want to be able to do micro interactions like posts and and things like that you could generate this key pair that i'm guessing it's stored like in session storage locally on that browser yeah we use it so it's like you so So
1: we encrypt we okay yeah, we yeah encrypt and put it on put it into index DB right so it doesn't leave that device yeah and then but then again you you also want to make sure that this is the pair that you want to authorize for but your since your smart contract also needs to know which keypad is the ephemeral keypad you capture that and you put it into a PDA so that the PDA mm-hmm. becomes the thing that you pass around right like much like how you would but
0: you would still have to sign you would still have to sign every transaction with that ephemeral key pair yeah. you could just handle it automatically exactly. because it's exactly. just stored in stored locally exactly. you would basically programmatically be able to sign exactly. every transaction using this ephemeral key pair that's stored only locally and then that just actually signs the transaction it doesn't have a balance or anything yeah. because the balance is actually stored in the PDA which the PDA pays for everything because you pre-funded that when you created the session. Yeah. And then each session key PDA is specifically tied to a, a specific program. Exactly. So like, say I wanted to interact with OpenBook open book or something where I create a session key with open book. It generates the ephemeral key stores it locally. I fund that PDA exclusively for interacting with the open book program. And then, programmatically everything happens, you don't have to sign another pop-up, you don't have to deal with anything. Exactly. Is that that the gist? Yeah. That's Ooh, that's super interesting. I could imagine like so many potential use cases. I've seen a couple of different similar solutions, but it seems like everyone is doing it exclusively client side. Whether it's wallet providers or generating like an additional key pair using like a different derivation path or if they're just storing it locally and and like signing everything locally. I don't think really any of
1: them are using like an on-chain component like that. So that's super interesting. Without that, what ends up happening is that now whatever burner wallet that you create, now that tagging comes into a place where it's all or nothing, right? That's not how people use any systems. When you log into Facebook or when you log into Instagram, you have one username and password, but then there are different types of things that you do. And each one of those have like different privilege levels.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're just taking this entire concept of like the JWT, like you mentioned, the JSON web token, for anyone who's listening who's not super technical, basically when you log into almost any website these days, they use this effectively, like take it like a session ID. That's usually what they are. In some languages, they're actually just called session IDs. In JavaScript, there there's like a standard for, called JWT, JSON web tokens. And it basically stores certain information, including a specific access token that has a cached value in whatever service, like say Google, you have a cached value in Google's database that says this is a specific string of random letters and numbers. It's randomly generated value. It's tied to a certain length of time. It gets auto-invalidated after that length of time. And you have like certain permissioned actions you could take. You could create a post, you could perform certain actions, right? But then once you get to more complex, more more destructive actions, like like you said, it you have to re-authenticate. You have to enter your password, do your 2FA, all that kind of stuff, because you maybe you're trying to change a password. You want to enter your password before you change a password. You're basically taking that entire concept of using the Solana blockchain as that backend, saying like, hey, this is the session key this is what it's good for this is the program it can act, interact with this is like the dap you're interacting with and this is when it expires if you're trying to do some specific actions that you need higher privilege maybe you just have to resign with your original wallet that's like the gist of it right yeah you're basically just taking traditional sessions and putting them on chain
1: exactly yeah
0: and that's oh dude that's awesome
1: i mean almost every programmer thinks like that that's that's something but not not just the programmer. That's also how your what your typical users are used to, right? The whole yeah, exactly. the whole concept of having to maintain like different things, different set of key pairs based on different places that I and I interact with. It's a tremendous amount of cognitive overload for any kind of user. And it's also at some point you trade off, uh, you know, y- you choose convenience, and then all it takes is like one bad implementation to completely drain your wallet. And we have seen so many cases of it, right? Oh yeah. And I also, I'm generally not a fan of inmap wallets because they treat security there as like really a binary thing. And but that's not just because of how people implement it. It's just because of the nature of h- how burner wallets are. Right? Yeah. And it's just a ton of cognitive overload for any user. All, The whole thesis behind whatever i do is that at some point i want my mom to be able to use the products that we are building i as a texas today i absolutely do not see a scenario where you know my she can maintain like different set of keypads for different kind of applications she interacts with forget that i don't even think of a world where she actively understands what a pair is, how to secure it well, right? So we have mm-hmm. a long way to go before that kind of thing happens. So it's the whole idea behind come is to, one, I envision a world where people have interoperable identities and interoperable social graph, but then it's one thing to just build out this protocol and call it a day and, you know, let everybody compose, but it takes, it's entirely another thing to, Painstakingly solve all the problems that, you know, that is along the way before any kind of mainstream adoption could happen. And session keys for us is a very critical part of it.
0: Yeah, I could totally see that. To summarize what you just said, it's like in order to get people that are not super technical to adopt this wonderful technology that has so much potential, the user experience just has to be so much better when people try to explain what a key pair is to someone and they're just like not getting it. And I, I like to liken that to just passwords in general. Yeah. Like to this day, we still cannot convince people to use a complex password because it's inconvenient. People don't want to be inconvenienced. Oh, so they're using password123 as their password and then they get hacked. And like some websites have are enforcing having strong passwords, which is good, but they don't all force expire those passwords where you have to, to change your password every so often. It's just like, cool, you set a password that's uppercase P, password, one, two, three, four, exclamation point. It's like, okay, great. Well, <laughs> technically that meets the requirement of this, like, not very sophisticated check. Like, okay, great. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, I mean, I, I I know how my mom chooses her password, right? Like, I've already been through that phase of being being her tech support when she <laughs> <laughs> what child hasn't yeah exactly right now imagine now you have to teach them what a wallet and a keypad and what a seed face is
0: yeah and if you if anyone else has your password for this they have all of your your accounts and that's like if you give them access to your bank account like that's bad don't do that and they're like oh well if i lose it i'll just reset it. it's like well you can't so you're like trying to explain this concept and they're just like not getting it. You're just like, well, okay, we're not there yet. Got it. <laughs> yeah. Uh. All right. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap this up. We're getting close to time. I want to make sure I respect your time. I know it's getting later for you. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we go or point anyone around the internet to check out more information about you or WordSoul or Bubblegum? Yeah. Or I guess, or gum rather, not yeah. Bubblegum.
1: Yeah. Gum is like largely inspired... From Gum, I have this whole story around how Gum came to be. Right? One of the biggest problems that we had when we were doing WordCell was that we did not have a name that sufficiently captured everything that we did, right? Because WordCell kind of restricts us to blogging. So I liked the name Gum a lot. Think of it like this: right? if you're building this composable, decentralized social graph, and gum, in a way, gum is the social glue. And not only is the social glue, it's also the composability glue because it gives you all these Lego blocks of different things that you can use to bring social experiences into your own application. You get to do all of this in 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 a way that it you know it feels like you are chewing gum and not glass. And over and above it, this is kind of like a testament or you know working off of the. It's standing on the shoulders of giants. None of this, none of what we do would be possible without bubble gum or gummy roll, right? So it's kind of like a testament to them as well.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love the slogan on the gum website. It's like put something to the effect of putting the social graph on chain for the less than the cost of a pack of gum. And I like the first time I saw that I was like, first of all, that's wonderful. Second of all, <laughs> I love, it's like, it's like two puns in one. It's like an homage to chewing glass. or like, now we're going to chew bubble gum now. But just then the pure cost is so, so cheap. I love it so much. All right. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap this up here. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll have links for Shek in the show notes and all of his projects and whatnot. So thanks all. See you in the next one. Awesome.